for October 17th, 2011. It's the Overthinking It Podcast, episode 172, Johnny Appleseed's Seed Shooting Gatling Gun. Welcome to the Overthinking It Podcast, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. Deep in his underground lair, Matt Rather is plotting the destruction of us all. But during this brief respite and sabbatical from his work here, I will be hosting for the evening. So, uh, ding dong, uh, the witch is dead. Nah, it's not true. More like cats away, the mice will play. So time to bust out the cheese and the whiskey. So let's have some fun. We got a tight panel tonight of experts, and we are ready to overthink some pretty cool stuff that's happening. We've been trying to talk about Comic-Con. We're going to talk about some recently published stuff that's kind of cool. But first, before before we go any further, The Walking Dead is beginning its second season a mere half an hour from when we've begun this recording. We will be recording while the dead walk, which is a pretty exciting thing. But the second season of The Walking Dead is going to have to reinvent some of the things that they did in the first season. So, panel, your question for the day is, in the second season of The Walking Dead, what other gerund would you like to see the dead Engage in a gerund, of course, uh, the ing form of a verb that is used uh, uh, as a, adverbially and as a noun. So we're going to go in alphabetical order, and that puts us down in Brooklyn, New York, with Mark Lee. Mark, how are you doing today? I'm comic conned out, is what I am. <laughs> um, we'll, we'll come to that in a second. Um, so the blinking dead, right? The, the blinking dead? The blinking dead. The blanking dead, okay. Yes. Uh, we've seen the dancing dead in, the, in Thriller, right? Okay. Yeah, uh, sure. You, have we seen the Singing Dead? They don't really sing in Thriller, but I have seen a zombie musical, um, one that uh, was not the one that was written by some of the people that uh, <laughs> are, are involved in overthinking it, but it was a different one. And uh, yeah. those zombies, uh, they they were the Singing Dead. Um, yeah. What's coming to mind here is I'd like to see the Drinking Dead. The Drinking Dead. The Drinking Dead. Yeah. Um, you know how their behavior changes under the influence of alcohol. <laughs> Presuming that you know the zombie virus or whatever infecting agent uh, you choose is infected by alcohol. It uh, you know, impairs the already very limited judgment that they already have. Um, they ha- get, you know, zombie beer goggles. They start to, they eat – oh, that's what it is. They start eating things that are not brains and are not humans. Right. I mean, they're already shambling all over the place and, like, moaning and lunging toward any woman that they see. So, like, I don't really see. Maybe they're already <laughs> intoxicated. Uh, but no, the drinking dead, that'd be cool. I'd like to see what they what they like to drink. Like, are yeah, they're going to be, like, wine zombies versus beer zombies? Is that the new, like, 28 Days Later controversy of the fast zombie <laughs> the, versus the slow zombie? The, the, young, the young zombies are into the wine coolers. Yeah, yeah, the yeah. The more sophisticated zombies are swilling whiskey on the rocks. Exactly, exactly. I can see that. I, I'd like to see this on the Food Network. Less I love feeling. Like, Brains taste great. Brains. <laughs> awesome, definitely. That is a uh, uh, no reservations necessary for that one. That's for sure. <laughs> my, my only problem, my only problem with that strategy, Mark, is that the alcohol can preserve flesh. So you may just be making the zombies last longer as a <laughs> well, threat to humanity. One glass of red wine has been known to help zombie health in the long term. So it's important. <laughs> <to say. laughs> Not the antioxidants, and, and it gets the free radicals out of their system. They rot and eat the living. So, <laughs> um, coming in there from, oh gosh, where are you these days? You're down in Pennsylvania? It's Josh McNeil. How are you doing? I'm doing quite well. Uh, the thing that I'm really terrified of seeing, uh, how to put this in a, in a family-friendly way, uh, would be the reproducing dead. 
<laughs> the re- like, wait, which is the scarier part? Like actually watching zombie labor or like watching them like have to go to in vitro when like they have fertility problems and stuff? I think the entire reproducing cycle is, uh, is actually going to be pretty horrific to watch on screen. Right, right, right. Uh, are you talking you know, about the sweet zombie lovemaking? And the exactly. Thing? I mean, because, you know, there aren't a lot of survivors, but there are a lot of <laughs> fetishists out there. And at least yeah. one of them is going to start eyeing the zombies. And it's yeah. just it's not going to be something. That's like season eight of The Walking Dead, I think. <laughs> I'm only interested in the reproducing dead if they go through, like, all the elements of getting a child. Like, they have to take zombie Lamas classes, which are like, oh, 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 oh. Squeeze her hand. Squeeze her hand. <laughs> no, you broke her hand off. <laughs> eat her hand eat her hand okay good <laughs> yeah they have to go to like it's tough you don't know whether you have kind of a boy zombie or a girl zombie so you have to figure out whether you're gonna get like pink or blue like tattered clothes so, yeah i don't know man the carpooling is going to be tough given the the unnecessary uh the not having the necessary brain function to operate a minivan it's gonna be very difficult um uh, but you know what? i like this i, li- I want to see this on the learning channel i want to see like john and kate plus zombies i think it would be solid <laughs> 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 You're getting a little bit of zombie fatigue. There's going to be a whole different series of different kinds of pop cultural fatigue that we're going to talk about on the podcast today, I think. Because I think everybody is pretty saturated and we're dealing with brains that are kind of brains, as it were. They're seeping with pop culture. So, uh, but let's go to, to one of my, uh, one of our, our more adroit podcast members. Did I use the word correctly? Uh, I, I don't remember exactly what it means, but it felt right. Uh, John Parrish, how are you doing, John? What up? All right. So in the uh, Michel Gondry film, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, there's a great scene about midway through where uh, Jim Carrey and Kate Winslet's characters are having a rather sort of glum, unproductive brunch or some meal like that out in a restaurant. And Jim Carrey thinks to himself, has this happened to us? Are we the dining dead? (laughs) (laughs) I'd like I'd like to explore that concept further where you know it's a it's a hot young couple you know sort of on the cusp of their relationship going downhill and they realize that you know they're surrounded by the dining dead you know dining zombies couples in the the twilight years of their relationship and they have to fight their way out of this you know hep brunch cafe and then navigate through this you know this bike path and you know this this duck par uh, this duck pond and all these other <laughs> you know hip coupley activities and yeah. and get to i don't know like a taxi somewhere and that's that's their escape from the city their escape I, from the dining dead i have another take on the dining dead it'd be like an extremely upscale restaurant catering to zombies like uh, for those for those in, in New York City are familiar with per se the infamous three hundred dollar tasting menu, right? You know each uh, each disc comes out impeccably arranged. It's just a little bit of brain, you know, uh, with a little bit of a, you know a nice garnish on top. Oh, oh, honey, they've dish. got physicist. <laughs> <laughs> Very nice, friend. Dude, would it be possible to make like a Left for Dead mod? Is, is Left for Dead? Do they have an editor where you can modify it so that you could like modify uh, a Left for Dead level where you're actually on a date and are trying to like score points with the person that you're with, like like getting them flowers and holding the doors for them, while at the same time trying to avoid large hordes of zombies that are chasing you? Um, or is, is that I don't know. I don't know whether is it is it a PC console thing. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. It sounds like a like a Sims zombie mashup right but the sims <laughs> has all the the mechanics of courting and right. dating sort of built into it you just need to add zombies to the mix which it seems like almost all video games are doing these days wasn't there a call of duty zombie uh expansion yeah. pack or something yeah like mod- that? well modern yeah. warfare 2 comes with a uh a whole zombie fighting like side game yeah 
And, and then Red Dead Redemption had a zombie expansion? They did. Yes. Wow. And yes. one of the more popular custom apps on the StarCraft II server on, on Battle.net is a zombie-related thing as well. Um, yeah, they're yeah. all... I think the, we're getting a little zombie. The fishing. Tetris zombie expansion really was terrible, though. <laughs> exactly. The, the, yeah, the, the lime-clearing dead. The, um, but yeah, for me, I, I don't know. I've ex- I haven't been getting a ton of joy out of television lately, and it makes me think back to the days when t- TV was fresh and new and the things about it that used to really excite me. So I think that uh, although... What? The 50s? <laughs> no, not the 50s. More like my childhood. Uh, I don't think necessarily a period in time where television was better. It was perhaps just a period in my life where I was like more simpatico with television. But I want, I want to see the shopping dead. And, and I don't want to see them like Dawn of the Dead, like returning to the mall. Uh, you know, at a sort of like a, a consumerist critique. Uh, I want to see the zombies playing Supermarket Sweep, which was like a TV show that always <laughs> brought a great deal of joy. Did you guys ever watch Supermarket Sweep? Uh, I, have a, I have a vague recollection of it. Oh, yes. man. It was on Lifetime Channel, which when you have a mom and four sisters, you get a fair amount of in the kitchen <laughs> when you're eating lunch on, in the summer vacations. But it was a show where you had three couples, right, all wearing matching sweatshirts cause, to make it maximum sex factor. Uh, and you, they would uh, answer trivia questions about groceries. And then at the end of the – to get time, right, uh, that you would use at the end of the show in a mad dash uh, to collect as many groceries in your grocery cart as possible uh, for a cash value. Like you're looking for the total cash value of the groceries in your grocery cart. And the team that won – I think I don't think it's that they won all the groceries. I think they won like cash equivalent to the groceries that they had and the chance to play for $5,000. So it was like a, a grocery store-themed show that just I just enjoy the heck out of it. And I'd love to see like a person and a zombie, like a person chained to a zombie uh, playing the supermarket sweep. Uh, I think that would be a is, lot of fun. Is the strategy for that not entirely meat-based? Not entirely meat-based. See, you've got a good. Yeah. You've already got a pretty good uh, handle on how it works. So the first, th- the strategies are pretty in that, well mapped. In that I've been shopping. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Well, you go to the the first things you go to are the turkeys and like the Christmas hams, right? Like the big hams. Uh, and then I think there were also medicines and vitamins and stuff that you could go for that you could get quickly. You get five of any one item. Right, uh, mm. and of course, I think that the, there are qual- classifications too. So you couldn't get like five manwiches and five canned sloppy joes and five like sandwich helper or whatever like canned meat product. Like you get like five of a product. Uh, so you would run to the hams and the turkeys, and it'd be very dramatic as you're chucking the turkeys into the into the shopping cart. Um, and then people would move on from there, like going to the different kinds of sauces and. And other kinds of fancy things. Uh, yeah, I mean, supermarkets, and I feel like if they remade it, it wouldn't have as much fun. Part of what was fun about it was that it, like, it was in a grocery store. Like, there was a supermarket sweep grocery store that they used, and uh, it just had this really sort of thrown-together quality where they were really trying to explore the things that people enjoy about shopping. And it was a time when, when fantastical recreations of things that happened only in your mind were much harder to come by. Like, nowadays, you could very easily make a movie where they just, like, ransack a, uh, a supermarket just entirely in CGI with no real supermarket involved. The, so the other thing to add to that is that uh, food shopping has become politicized with the uh, with the modern you know food movement. Right? Oh, so right, a, right. a modern version of supermarket sleep would have someone at the end, uh, sort of you know, looking down their nose and judging you for the the things in there that have high fructose corn syrup but then are organic. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it was also a time when, when it felt like supermarkets where there weren't really tiered supermarkets to the same extent as there are today, mm. right? Like there was the idea that every – even if it wasn't the reality, it was the idea that everybody goes to the same supermarket. Now, you know, now of course, then there were even then there were still good ones and bad ones. But now like you know, food uh, 
uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Food deserts are a bigger deal where there like aren't supermarkets and people have to buy their food from if they don't if they want to don't want to walk a long way and they don't have a car they have to go to like the CVS to buy food, right? Which or, is kind or of even sick. just that you know your regular run of the mill. Uh, grocery store is a tier below the Whole Foods, right? Yeah, exactly, exactly. The value add grocery store has added a whole new element to it. Cool. So yeah, so I think I think that if we're going to really milk this whole zombie thing for every last ounce of franchise enjoyment that we can, uh, and I think The Walking Dead is 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 attempting to do that. I really hope the show, and I don't want to spoil it for anybody, but I really hope the show finds like a new a direction to go in that like isn't the direction of the comics. I mean, if people on in here like listen, watch the red the comics for the walking dead i've, I've read the first i i don't know how much I've, I've read a good portion of them but i know they've continued since i stopped so probably only the equivalent of like a quarter at this point so i've read some of them why what do you want what do you want to okay uh spoiler alert for the comics listeners uh yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. so what, I mean, what we're do not you, actually going to give away what, what happens but well i mean what do you, what yeah. do you want to change what do you want to be different well, there's – okay, so the initial setup of The Walking Dead has a lot of dramatic tension. Um, you know, and, and you've seen this in the show. There's there, – the guy was unconscious and, and his wife is, is rescued by his best friend, right, who's yeah. also his coworker. And they and there's like – when he comes back, there's like dramatic tension where it's like, oh, are they going to get – did they did they cheat on him? Did they did she not cheat on him? Uh, are they all going to stay together because they're like the last people they know? Uh, is the betrayal sufficient to like drive the family apart? Like things of that nature, right? Yeah. Um, as the show, as the comic book continues, uh, a lot of that gets shaken out. Like a lot of the situations that have dramatic tension at the beginning setup, go away. Right? They get resolved, and uh, and because that's what happens when you tell stories. And the right. things that get added, they don't have the same sort of dramatic tension because they're not connected to how the world was before the zombie apocalypse. Right? Okay. Like it's like it's only the relationships that come to exist when the zombie apocalypse already happens. And there's like a level of alienation there that's like it's not as interesting. You know, it's 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 the romances aren't going to be as 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 believable or fresh because it's like, well, of course you're going to sleep with whoever you find in the zombie apocalypse. Like, what else are you going to do with your time? <laughs> right? Like, you know, like it just it just gets. I, I find it to gets it gets flat. It gets very dark. Right? Like, and that's not a spoiler. Like, it gets really dark, um, much much darker. I mean, I've read like the first eighty issues, and uh, it gets real dark. But I'm not going to explain it. it just give away anything that happens i feel like they have another maybe season and a half before they really have to deal with that problem of just like the the story just kind of flattens out and uh and just stays kind of in a low energy level for a long time with like a lot of, but it also just might be fatigue again just because it's like so much zombie and fighting and biting and violence and all sorts of mutilations and such so um but yeah, I won't give any of the, of the wonderful, pleasant things away uh, from all that. Um, so yeah, speaking of wonderful, pleasant things that make us want to uh, mutilate and chew on things, uh, Mark, are you, give, us the, give us the rundown for Comic-Con, <laughs> despite your, your Comic-Con fatigue. Uh, I, I, I got to say, I, I got to question your segue activity there. <laughs> it, 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 Comic-Con isn't entirely wonderful, uh, and, nor does it uh, make me want to chew on things or eat things. Um. It kind of has the opposite effect because uh, the, at the Javits Center in New York City, there's a sort of nauseating smell, a mixture of body odor and bad concessions. Right. It takes away your appetite in a big way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but the part that's not wonderful, let me let's just lay it out there. All right. 
uh, this is my third year in a row having gone to Comic Con. Each year, you know, covering it for for overthinking it, and there's been a steady decline going from "Ooh boy, I'm going to Comic Con. This is awesome. I'm check out these cool things." To be "Ugh, I am a jaded member of the press, and I'm covering this because I have to." No, that's not entirely <laughs> true. The, the, the trajectory has definitely gone that way. So let me just uh, backtrack here. Let's take us back to a simpler time three year, three years ago, the year 2008. Um, and actually, Matt Rather and I both went together to Comic Con, and uh, you may recall that actually no, this was um, this was I think March two thousand and nine actually. Um, so yeah, March two thousand and nine, and I was very excited to see a preview of a little movie we call Terminator Salvation. I think we <laughs> yes. all remember that time, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and and this really is central to my point here, which is that Comic Con is really for the fan, not just for the fans, but the fanboys, right? Fanboys, fangirls, the real, uh, the real fans who are unabashedly squee into their pop culture um, in, in a way that doesn't necessarily preclude the sort of you know detached uh, observation that we do, but it's a different type of different way of enjoying pop culture for sure. Oh, yeah, well, it's a right. comic book convention. Oh yeah, I mean, like that's, that's in the name, right? Yeah. So, so, yeah, so remember, yeah. that's me going into into my first Comic Con. It's like, yes, Terminator preview, and this is all brand new and shiny to me, and you know, going around taking all these pictures and just you know soaking it all in, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then fast forward two years after that. Um, the big sort of screening preview types of things. Uh, there was the Avengers, the Marvel Avengers mm-hmm. um, preview, which I couldn't even get into because uh, it was late in the afternoon. And I think to get in, uh, I probably have to queue up like many, 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 many hours in advance. Far mm-hmm. more than I was willing to given my non-squee like fanboy status for Marvel Comics and, uh, mm-hmm. and the Avengers. All right, so I didn't even get to see that. Uh, it turns out that Chris Evans and, uh, and a few other stars uh, of, the, of the Avengers had showed up uh, as, you know, there's special fan type of thing and they debuted some some new footage that would have been cool to go to but i didn't get to it um so i did you know my typical thing i you know took tons of pictures of the costumes which is which is for sure entertaining and you can see them on the site i put them up um, i had a great interview actually with dan wallace uh, overthinking it reader and author of several star wars books so I had a, oh, I, you, I had you a, did that interview? That, yeah, absolutely. That one yeah, yeah, yeah. So I got I got to cut the video together and I'll put them to the site later on this week. That was for right. sure. That was excellent. That was a lot of fun. Um, but, but the rest of it, a combination of just sort of being worn down by by work and you know this third, being the third year in a row that I've been there, the novelty had gone away and I, I felt the divide between uh, the fanboys that were there and the fanboy that I was, the Terminator fanboy that I was, the first time I had gone to Comic-Con, um, and, uh, and and then me, right, being, you know, a member of the press. I had my official overthinking a press pass on and was there to, quote-unquote, cover right. the event. Right, right, right. And you think, do you think this is primarily a phenomenon you are experiencing subjectively or one that other people who are there might also be experiencing? I- I can't speak for other people there. I mean, like, what what impresses me is that year after year, you see people people come, they invest so much in their costumes, and they are so into uh, you know the the experience and all the different things that are on display there. I, I'm pretty. I, I think this is a pretty safe assumption that you know the the big comic book fans and the video game fans they come out year after year because they know what they're going to see, the new stuff. They're going to get their hands on it. Um, they're there for the atmosphere, the excitement. Of that, right? So I'm really speaking just for myself here. I don't. I, 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 if there's any sort of like you know waning uh, enthusiasm, uh, mm-hmm. I, we would not have been able to tell. I mean, the costumes are as big as an extravagant as they are in any year. Right, right, right. Mark, right. I knew that you hated Termina- Terminator Salvation, but I didn't know that it had really just like completely stolen your childhood in this way. 
<laughs> I wouldn't quite say that. No, I would still call myself a Terminator fanboy. The extent that, like, let's be honest, if they if another Terminator movie comes out and uh, the sort of opportunity comes to get into a sneak preview of it, you better believe I'm going to be lining up many hours in advance to get to get in on that. Right, right, right. That's interesting. So, so, well, so, okay. So, Comic Cons existed a while before the mainstream media, as it were, like the mainstream entertainment industry, decided that and found out that they were a really valuable way of getting social media mavens and like social capital groups, like organizations that were going to market their products for them, uh, to, to get them in front of the products and to kind of get them engaged with the products, right? Like, you know, Comic Con existed prior to when it was this thing that the studios yeah. would use to like send out rumors on the internet right I, I could i could be wrong but i think i remember hearing a story about the first san diego comic-con being like 20 dudes in a room yeah yeah exactly like, exactly. like it, how else could it, it it had to have started like that right yeah yeah exactly and so now it's this big thing and also cosplay has become such a huge symbol of everything that it is and, and even though it's, uh, it's supposed to be a book convention about books and you never see any of the books in the coverage right are there a lot of actual comic books there Oh, there's a ton, for sure. Like, that's the thing that I'm actually interested in hearing about now, because as I get bored of, like, oh, like, what is Joss Whedon going to say at what panel, and, like, what big movie that I've been hearing about for three weeks I'm going to keep hearing about, what about the actual comic books? Like, are there just rows and rows of actual comic books? Yes, there are vendors there, and uh, you can see this on, uh, I talked about this in the video that I cut together, right. my experience last year, is that uh, in spite of all the other craziness you see around you, comics are still at the heart of it, not just, <laughs> you know, with vendors, you know, with with uh, crates upon crates of vintage and new comic books, but also like independent artists, the like you know the, the people who draw and write the books themselves, they're there. They're there to talk about their work. Um, there, you know, I last year I saw um, an, an artist, you know, work, take a look at the portfolio of a young, uh, I presume amateur, you know, who wanted to get some some feedback on that. So that's definitely there. It, it's not, you know, it's maybe not. Uh, in the forefront of everybody's imagination when they think about the big movie previews and the gaudy costumes and that sort of thing. But for sure, comic books are still a big yeah. part of Comic-Con. Yeah. I mean, being a comic book writer, I, I know I know a couple people who've been comic book writers, and I know at least one person who's been a comic book editor. And it's a really interesting feel to, to hear about because you can get really close to these franchises, and, and there's a lot of stuff that gets made. There, there's, a, there's a lot of volume of work that gets done, and they use a lot of contractors. So, you know, someone will come in and do like a couple stories, right? And then it won't be. And there's, you know, the drawers and the the inker is a different person than the person who's doing this the the sketching and all this other stuff. I mean, I'm I'm not as keen on the technical terms as I might be, but um, like it, it seems when you're a child, right, that like actually getting to draw Spider-Man in a professional context. Uh, would be something that you would never get to do. This would be like a, a very elevated thing to do. But it turns out that they need an awful lot of people to draw Spider-Man for an awful lot of different reasons. So there really is a lot of wheeling and dealing and contracts and negotiations and goes on around this stuff, right? I mean, it's still a fairly small group of people overall. And I'm not saying you get to write the Spider-Man book, but, you know, if he appears in the background of something else, why not? You know what I mean? Um, it is cool to hear about. I'd love to hear more of that side of Comic-Con. Maybe that's what will come out eventually when... Uh, if people get tired of marketing their movies there or if comic book movies kind of finally run I, out of steam. I don't know. That, that, that's a good to bring that up because that's another thing that's missing from my approach to Comic-Con is that like yeah. I, I've never been a big comic book reader yeah. myself, right? So I'm, I'm definitely not in the position to sort of go and 
you know, ferret that out or research it on my own or go and talk to the people that are actually there. Um, and how strong is the, the comic book audience in America anyway? I mean, the, the average age of a, of a contemporary comic book reader is, I think, about five years older than the people on this podcast, at least by the last, by the last surveys I've read. And we talk about comic book properties being hot, but all of the, like, all of the characters who are being licensed and portrayed now, like Green Lantern, there's a Superman reboot, there's the Avengers coming out, those are all characters who are at least 40 years old, if not older. It's not like there's a lot of hot new comic book characters who are being introduced to the uh, to the genre, to the mythos or what have you, and who are building a newer, younger generation of fans who are then who are then coming up. I mean, I think I think that I think like, that's definitely a problem, right? I think that's one of the reasons why DC rebooted their entire lineup back to uh, what uh, issue edition one, right? It's yeah, because the, they they found this was losing losing audience, and then to reintroduce it to a younger audience, um, they just sort of scrapped the old continuities and started started again from scratch. Yes, mm. to to vastly limited success is is my understanding. Mm. I mean, I'm looking at it. Oh, go ahead. I mean, that that's not a success that you can measure though in a year or ten years. I mean, that's a that's a twenty year strategy that they just tried, and I think we won't be able to judge it really for quite a long time. Mm. Uh, to me, the, the the weakest part of it was the the sort of webcomic piece, um, which is. You know, if if you're gonna get eight year olds reading these, you're gonna get them reading them on their parents' iPods and that sort of thing. And um it seems to be a really clunky interface. I haven't yeah. really read comics in a long time, but I decided, oh, this is this is interesting. Some characters I used to care about, I'm gonna check out this reboot and it's it's just painful to try and actually get through. Yeah. In it's terms of the user experience, you know, just like yeah, that? just in terms of like the actual way they just they display them on the internet is is pretty You'd think they could do something better than that. Yeah. I mean, there's so many web comics, right, that are so successful. You'd think that the professional major comic book companies would be better at executing web comics, right? But well, they're, I mean, the they're designing stuff. for – they're design- I forget the actual dimensions of a comic book, but they're designing for something that is taller than it is wide. Yeah. And we're looking at things on computer screens. Um, right. And just like, and, you know, as long as you're sort of locked into one, um, the other one is not going to be as effective. Yeah. I think we, uh, I have a feeling that a new DC Comics uh, super villain is coming out. Uh, the aspect ratio. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> he's I mean, whiter than he's tall, and, and neither Superman nor Batman know what to do with him. I mean, that's, that's, I'll tell you this. That's when you'll know that the, the comic book industry has gone over the tipping point and adapted is if comic books change to be the shape of computer screens. Right, like, and you so you can publish the same content in a book that you can hold as you can watch on on a computer screen. That would be interesting, um, yeah. Or or computer screens that can turn, or an iPad, I guess. I guess an iPad. Do, do is we probably. have other examples of that though? I mean, the ebook well, phenomenon is, hasn't really, isn't really affected quite in the same way, right? No, because the words can wrap at whatever point, but like images, you're either you know. You can't look at a whole big vertical image on a screen, um, at least the way that this is set up, um, you know, quite as easily. Yeah, I mean, I, what I was thinking, I was thinking about today. Um, one thing I was thinking about today was bottle caps. Um, <laughs> what a day! It was an exciting day. Let me tell you. <laughs> so I, was about, I was thinking about bottle caps, and I was thinking about like contemporary 
sort of packaging development and product development and, and, and how so much money and energy nowadays goes into designing the package around a product and so much goes into making it user-friendly. And part of what made me think about this was um, – the uh, I started. I recently downloaded and started playing Team Fortress Two, and I haven't played a first-person shooter in a long time, uh, except even, except for occasionally on a console. And the amount that they do to try to make the experience easy when you first start, like, kind of surprised me because I was, I was th- I'm much more old school in my first-person shooters, and I didn't expect there to be so many tutorials and trainings and pop-up windows and and help and all this other stuff. And it occurred to me that there's that that has come all the way across the culture. One place where you don't see it is bottle caps, where people. St- Oh, and I remember because one of I went furniture shopping today, and a friend gave me a ride, and my friend had a keychain that had a bottle opener on it, and I looked at it, and I was like, and I mean, I have a keychain with a bottle opener on it, and I don't carry it everywhere, but it's like, yeah, like we carry bottle openers with us because the bottle companies still make a product that you can't open without a tool. Right and like, how weird is that in this day and age? Like, think about that. Like, like if you had to, if you had to buy, I mean, like, it's so annoying when you buy something from like Logitech or whatever and it won't open, or when you buy a master lock and you can't open the thing that the lock is in, right? Because you have to get like a freaking sword to go through that like thick plastic, right? But um, even See, I, I think they're actually they're playing to a certain subculture there because there is the there is the subculture of people who love to be the guy at the party with the bottle opener. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> there are tens of thousands of these people across America who like just can't wait. Like will like race each other to like gunslinger style draw the bottle opener out of their out of their pocket and be the first one to get there. Yeah. Uh, this, is, this is also a, a bit of well, I guess contention within the the wine drinking community as well because there's this perception that screw top bottles of wine are of lesser quality than bottles of wine that are, you know, sealed with a cork. And and some of that may have to do with you know the the size of the uh, the size of the winery that bottles and produces them et cetera but but really there's there's no difference in terms of in terms of the packaging itself it's not like a cork preserves flavor in a way that a screw top can't right 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 and even if there are small differences it's very possible they're being overstated by people because of the sort of nostalgia factor and the, the factor of not wanting things to change exactly resistance exactly. to these things and I think that, that you can see things go over the tipping point sometimes and, and old things go away and comic books the way that comic books are published is not in line with the way that comics are generally consumed I mean I'm looking at these uh, and I don't mean I mean sequential art when I say comics right and I'm looking at the this site called comicron.com that has the sales for comic books and it says the estimated overall North America market size including estimates for newsstand comics and bookstores it has it through 2010 and it says that the 2010 market size was 640 to 680 million dollars right for all comic books and uh and it's 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 doubled since 1997, right? Like it's it's gone up significantly. Uh, they made a big jump in the mid to, in the mid aughts. The market size increased. Uh, part of that is that price increased uh, significantly during that time period. That was um, also like Spider Man and the first Nolan Batman. I think really sort of kicked off the most recent wave, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, this is the comic books themselves. Like I know, but like the, yeah, yeah. you know, in the way that those are ads for the movies, the movies are yeah. ads for them. Yeah, but I mean, like when I try to think about. Um, 
I got, I got to find a new benchmark, but like it's always hard to think about numbers that are in the hundreds of millions of dollars and billions of dollars and what that means. I used to have a benchmark that I used. I mean, I still have it, but I don't know if it's current. It's not current anymore. But to give you a sense, if you remember when Pokemon was like really popular and had been popular for a while, right? And uh, there was a time like around like the latter half of the peak of popularity of Pokemon that I remember someone explaining to me. Uh, it might have even been a news report that the full size of the market for Pokemon products was a billion dollars. That like Pokemon was a billion dollar industry, um, and just Pokemon. And the idea that like looking at this time frame, that was like in the early aughts. You know, the the all of all of the comic books being sold in the whole continent of North America were only about a third of what was going on with Pokemon at the time. So comics are, are – they happen, but they're – it's not like Spider-Man the movie is this like relatively small thing next to this sort of like deep well of Spider-Man the comic, right? Um, it's a fairly small operation. I mean it's still not, like – Not seven. from a monetary standpoint. From a like storytelling standpoint, yeah, it's still a mm-hmm. you know, pretty – it's a single story compared to how many hundreds have been written. Yeah, but where is the center of gravity in the the thing? That, the thing that you just said that made the the most difference to me, I thought, was that if if you collected, if you caught rather all the Pokemon, <laughs> you could still only buy like half a stealth bomber. Yeah, that's true. Isn't that weird? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, it is funny that if you sold every comic book in the in the country, and you still you buy like an F twenty two Raptor, like one, is what you would have. Um, so that is, you know, you better put your piggy bank out wait, there. Wait, wait, wait. Let's work back those numbers. How expensive is a is a stealth bomber? I believe they were two billion when they when they came out. Yeah. Wow. That's a lo- that's launch date. So you know, they they didn't go out. The second, like the the second you take them off the lot, though, it's like one billion. <laughs> yeah, they lose like a billion dollar worth of value as soon as you fly them three thousand miles away from their lot. Um, yeah, undetectable. Although, yeah, they have to detect it before they can reprice it. It's kind of important. Um, <laughs> but yeah, but maybe comics will change, and maybe there'll be something new. And well, and what happens if if the comic bubble bursts and and comic stories don't have as much appeal as in a cinematic sense as they have before? Um, I mean, I don't, I don't want to let that pass on a comment. You're saying that there is, in fact, a comic bubble right now. Well, I mean, talking certain... about within the comic book industry itself, or like the production of the movies based on comic books. The latter, right. I would say, more likely, yes, the bubble. But the former, I don't know. I'm not. I'm not seeing the website that you're looking at. Is that indicative of a bubble? I mean, is there a case? No, no. There, there was a comic for... bubble, and it's not happening now. It happened like ten years ago. There was a bubble in like speculative investing in comic books because the value of comic books was rising. Right? Right. It sounds like similar to the baseball card thing, right? Yeah, it's very similar to the baseball mm. card thing. Um, you know, art is non-correlative with the stock market, supposedly. Right? So, uh, in this case, it generally wasn't. But people do invest in these things when they get extra money. But no, no, I'm saying that. Like, I'm, here's what I'm saying. I'm saying I'm seeing this Avenger movie finally coming out, and this tr- the trailer. It looks fine, but I'm not really feeling the sense of super joy that it's happening. Um, and I'm wondering how much gas is left in the tank that you can keep tossing $100, $200 million at these movies, and they're still going to like reliably turn you a big profit, right? Because there was a time that was a long time. It was the, the majority of the time that comic book movies have been made in this country, they've been low budget and terrible and not, not profitable, right? Mm-hmm. Like, like, you know, between the... I guess what you got like between Superman the movie and like the little bump in the seventies and the early eighties. Then there's like ten years before the Tim Burton Batman comes out, right? Like there are long stretches where it's like, oh, did you see the Captain America movie? It's the worst movie I've ever seen. Like that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, but but I feel like since the Tim Burton Batman's, they've been pretty solid. 
I mean, there's certainly been peaks and valleys within that, but there hasn't been a year, more than a year, where you haven't had a fairly large comic book movie come out, I don't think. Well, Tim Burton Batman was in 1990, and Spider-Man wasn't for a long time after that, right? Like, were you really having, you weren't getting Marvel Comics uh, movies before Spider-Man. Right, I don't think. Like, uh, not- X- X-Men. X-Men in 99 was the, right. the big one before that. That's right. That's the big one. So there's like – there's 10 years in the 90s where you're pretty much riding like the Joel Schumacher Batman movies. Um, I mean it's more like five or six years and it's like it, – it looks like you're not going to get a good comic book movie again. Um, so if we're worried about Marvel uh, running out of uh, gas in the tank after this Avengers movie – um, well, let's try this on their size. Here's um, I found this on SlashFilm.com. This is a report on the future uh, post uh, post Avengers movie. Um, yeah. It's pretty pretty predictable at first, right? Iron Man three, Thor two. Um, okay, this is interesting. Ant Man. Yep. Ant really? Man movie coming. Out. Yeah. <laughs> really? <laughs> okay, and and then from there, um, Guardians of the Galaxy. Is anybody familiar with that one? Yeah, I didn't think so. Guardians right. of the Galaxy. That's, that's not the same as the Guardians of the Universe in the Green Lantern mythos, right? I, what are I, Guardians I, of the Galaxy? Uh, interstellar warriors who are the last of his or her kind. Uh, they, they protect the galaxy in a proactive manner. That's all I and got. They, proact- they have preemptive, they preemptively <laughs> the galaxy. They find unsuspecting planets that may or may not have death rays, and they, like, bomb the hell out of them. <laughs> <laughs> it's a fictional superhero team appearing in books... Published by Marvel Comics, uh, they have a team from they have a team from 1969, and they made a modern team in 2008. All right. Well, let's let's just stop here. None of us had heard of the Guardians of the Galaxy prior to now, right? Like this being you know the overthinking it podcast panel. That's not that's it. not a good sign. Oh, Adam know? Warlock was in there, but I mean, come on. <laughs> Moon Dragon, like, come on, let's get serious. <laughs> well, this isn't this isn't a scientific uh, point at all. But but a couple of weeks ago, I was um, visiting a cousin in Texas, sixteen year old guy, um, and it was the day that Thor came out on on demand. And I have never seen anyone as excited to like pick up a remote control as this guy was. So like, we're a little wow. jaded, maybe, but we're thirty year old men That's for the most part. He, and like, he saw it in theaters. Dude, He's he'd already seen it in theaters, and he, he was so that. psyched to see it again that he made his mother and I watch it again. I was wow. more happy about that than she was, but um, it was you know he was. It, I think there it does tap into something that we may have grown a little bit out of. Sad to say, yeah. And keep in mind, Thor being the movie that we damned with the faintest of praise on this podcast, yeah. saying that it was like paint by numbers, like so yeah. rote and without any real anything really interesting going on, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Man, but you know, there's a member of the Guardians of the Universe named Rocket Raccoon, who is an intelligent anthropomorphic raccoon, <laughs> who like has a, a laser gun. <laughs> Good lord! Yeah, and, I mean, that, and not a rocket. <laughs> I know. Well, I mean, here's the thing: like, overthinking it is built on this idea that there's po- that there's popular culture that people like, and that, that is sort of seen it as probably kind of doesn't. Oh, sorry. Yeah, I know. No, we're not done yet. You don't get out that easy. Um, but I think it's built around this this sort of latter this later uh, one of the big energies behind it is this sort of late later in life appreciation for the entertainments of youth, right? And like you know big blockbuster movies and fun things like that, and and not really wanting to be ashamed of the things that you like, and not feeling like you have to move forward and change what you you read or watch necessarily just because you're getting older. You can like other things, right? But the idea that like the pop culture youth does generate the pop culture disproportionately, but we're all part of it. Right, and so there's this thought that okay, I'm part of this pop culture. 
uh, I want to apply the skills and thinking that I have now. Like I want to understand it the way that I understand things now, uh, rather than like looking back on it and thinking about how I thought about it when I was twelve, right? But um, I mean, are we are we hitting a point? I mean, is this sort of a generational point that's going to be coming up to where people are finally going to start getting tired of these things, and you won't be seeing thirty year old men go see Thor anymore? Like, is that going to happen? Because they have been, you know, like we have been seeing these movies, and I, I mean, even five years ago, I was much more excited for them than I am now. Maybe I just now, get bored of them faster. But no, because we're going to have kids. Oh, that's true, and then they're going to want to go see them. Is the idea exactly? And, and then, then we, we get to go see them. and we. Have- and have an ex- well, I would say we have an excuse to go see them with them. Fair enough. Like I remember, my dad. There weren't a whole lot of westerns made in the '80s after the Heaven's Gate thing, but like every time one was out, my dad took me. Right, because mostly he wanted to go see a western and he used me as an excuse. So I think right. I think we're we'll be doing that too. When Thor Eight comes out, my son and I will go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And there is there is something I think inherently fun about the Thor character, even if it depends on how it's executed. And the the idea that you know he's this. He's a fish out of water. He speaks in an anachronistic manner. He's immensely strong. So when he cuts loose, he really gets to to wreck stuff. And that's that's a that's a fun character if depicted well. So that's that's kind of timeless in a way. You see, mm. you see some of that with the Incredible Hulk when he's good Hulk, not when he's bad Hulk. Uh, you see some of that with uh, I'm I'm sure I'm sure there's some DC Comics property that's that's equivalent. It's it's escaping me at the moment, but. Um, but yeah, I mean, you you do see you. Do, I think that's that's why there's this recurring value in comics and why they can be revisited because you know they they fit sort of broad archetypes. Like you have the 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 good guy, all American hero patriot who's Captain America on the Marvel side and who's Superman on the uh, on the DC side. You have the you know grim edgy loner who who fights crime for reasons driven by his own psychoses which is the punisher on marvel side and batman on the the dc side or wolverine on the marvel side as well and uh, and batman on the dc side and they're sort of timeless archetypes that the comic book companies have become very good at tapping into so th- there will always be some there'll always be some water in that well well, also, like from a from a business standpoint, if you run a movie studio and you're going to invest, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars in something, like a character that has been around for forty years that people have been excited about for forty years is a great character to to what is it option, right? Yeah. Like, there's some guarantees there that you don't get with something just uh, you know made up that day. Well, not not even option. I mean, which movie studio owns DC Comics? Because I mean, DC Comics is is no longer its. Like Warner, Brothers. It's no longer, Warner Brothers, thank you. Yeah. yeah, it's no longer an independent property. Warner Brothers owns them entirely. And so, you know, they have that entire stable to call on and say, like, all right, let's plumb the depths a little and, and make a make that Gorilla Grodd movie that everyone's been uh, been dying to see. Mm-hmm. You know, I want to see let's let's get, I want to see another Paul Bunyan movie. I want to see like the equivalents from previous gen- Do you think there was a time where like a dad was like, "Oh man, like the the vaudeville hall is doing a Paul Bunyan show and I'm going to take my kid to go see it because even though he doesn't think Paul Bunyan is cool, like I love Paul Bunyan when I was a kid. So we're going to go see the new big budget Paul Bunyan stage play, right? Where, like <laughs> I hear they have an actual ox that's painted blue. It's awesome. Didn't Disney make like 90 Davy Crockett movies or something? Yeah, totally. The King of the Wild Frontier. And then they tried to do it again with the Pecos Bill tall tale stories, right? Like, uh, that had Kurt Russell in them, I think, right? Like, uh, well, I, I, yeah, I, I I don't really recall those. I mean, I, I do recall Davy Crockett appearing, you know, at several different 
generations worth of, of Disney production. Disney was also big on Zorro for a while, I think. Like they they had some they had some invested in in him as a stock character. Yeah, and Zorro so, came back and was successful for a while too. Yeah, for a little bit. So you've got you've got the Lone Ranger. Johnny mm-hmm. Depp is is rebooting the Lone Ranger, I believe, next oh, wow. summer or the summer after. Oh, my uh, dad's so, gonna yeah. love that. That's awesome. So maybe maybe Davy Crockett's time has come. So yeah, maybe it's time for the big budget Johnny Appleseed CGI movie. I mean, he's a hero <laughs> for our age if there ever was one, right? Like trying to take responsibility for reforestation and whatnot. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's organic too. Those are organic apples. Do you think actually John- he just he just wandered the country like spawning invasive species everywhere? Yeah, <laughs> he's he the villain of the new Captain Planet. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's it's an accepted trope that you can't tell a, a Western story in in modern times without inserting some some element of steampunk or modern technology that's sort of been punk retrofitted. So Johnny Appleseed would have like a Gatling gun that shoots apple seeds into the turf around like. Well, there was also the 2004 movie Appleseed, which would make it very difficult to brand, which is a an anime about a. A utopia, the end of the world, <laughs> right? Because 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 that that's going to stand in the way of branding an anime <laughs> film that so few people saw. Like, whoa, hold up! I want to see the people who are like, "Hey, this isn't a Shinji Aramaki movie. This is a <laughs> steampunk eco agricultural movie." <laughs> like, I want to the wrong, absurdly narrow niche. <laughs> like, somebody get me back to my comfort zone quickly. Give me an inhaler, and yeah, and a uh, oh man, and a, and a web comic. <laughs> that is fun. That is fun that we're going to all be fragmented. So wait, so is there anything that's being made now? I guess there'll be like Dora Explorer movies and stuff. But we've talked about this before. How like someday there'll be a Pokemon movie and it's going to be two hundred million dollars and all that other nonsense. Um, but yeah, and they already make all this stuff. So okay, so so we're, we've talked about comics and we've talked about like we're talking about long, today we're talking about long running pop culture phenomena, right? Then like how they've been exciting for a while, but they maybe don't have as big a share of the in the in public imagination as they do. So Josh, you recently read this book about World of Warcraft, right? And it's uh, and you really enjoyed it. Um, nobody on the podcast plays World of Warcraft, but I think we're all familiar enough with role playing games, both video game and tabletop role playing games, and people who play World of Warcraft, they have some frame of reference. But why don't you talk a little bit about this book and like what you think it says uh, about well about MMORPGs or about like you know gaming experiences or or, or the excitement attended to these things. All right. Well, the the, the book I read was called uh, I guess it's pronounced Reemda. Uh, it's it's like a readme file R E A D M E, but the D and the M have been swapped, and that's a, a bit of a an obscure plot point. Um, it's Neil Stevenson who um, are. are Audience probably knows from he did a thing called the Baroque Cycle, which was about the the scientific enlightenment. He did a book called Snow Crash uh, back in the '80s that was a pretty um, amazing prediction of the internet uh, back in its time. And this is one of the first ones that he's written about, um, sort of uh, about the time that he is living in. Um, and it was the and he has this great quote in an interview um, where he's like. I, you know, I almost stopped write, writing science fiction when I found out about gold farming, because really, there's just like, there's no way I can come up with anything weirder than that. <laughs> um, <laughs> which, which is pretty true. Gold farming being, uh, you know, this this thing that happens in these massively multiplayer online games, where um, often people in China will their their actual career is to go and like acquire gold that they then sell for actual currency to Western players who are too lazy to acquire it for themselves. And they acquire it through extremely menial tasks, right? 
Yeah, it's like, you know, I, I kind of, you know, to be honest, I don't play any of these games either, so I don't know exactly how it works. But it, it, it yeah, they basically do the boring parts of the game and then sell them, sell the, the, the results of that to you so you don't have to do the boring parts of the game. Right. Yep. Which to me yep. seems like an incredibly valuable service that they're providing, though apparently um, the world of Warcraft people disagree and attempt to shut them down uh, fairly frequently. Um, so this book is about it's, – uh, it's, it's not World of Warcraft so much as it is – it's like the World of Warcraft successor, which has been built uh, in order to, uh, to actually take advantage of this. And it's designed to make these people's lives easier because they are such an important version of it. So there's like a real like there's an entire economy uh, that has grown up around this with with you know tens of millions of dollars flowing in and out of it every day. This is um, in the fiction. This is not in in the fiction. In, yes, yeah, this yeah. this game T Rain, which is uh, which is the the game in the book, is is really sort of focused on that, and then. Uh, Stevenson, uh, for those who haven't read him, is one of these. Just a, he's a big idea author, so it's sort of like whatever things he's fascinated by in any given moment get sort of welded together into these you know twelve hundred page epic novels that are just a lot of fun. And this one was really good, um, largely I think because it was set in the modern day. Like it had this aspect to it, and you know one of the protagonists is reading a book on a Kindle. And I was think as I read it, I was thinking this. I think that's the first time I've ever seen that, um, mm-hmm. where like you know the they're talking about the medium. You know, I was reading it on a Kindle, and it was the first time that that I'd would sort of seen that happen, um, which I thought was really interesting. So just it's a it's a book that's very it reads like science fiction, but it's entirely based on the things that we're experiencing today. And, uh, really just, just fascinating. I finished it this morning, so I haven't had time to really properly overthink the book. Right. Uh, but I would, I would sort of encourage anyone who hasn't, hasn't read, uh, read to check it out. Or if you haven't read Stevenson, um, it's quite a lot of fun so, and, and really nice so, for overthinkers. So Josh, the one thing I've heard from people who've read this book is that unlike prior Neil Stevenson novels, where, the protagonists aren't people, but are really just like broad social trends that are butting head on, and people are like incidental pawns in the course of the storyline. That this story, that Reemdy actually has people doing things as opposed to broad social trends like rationalism versus, you know, pre Renaissance spiritualism fighting each other. Uh, it, true, false? Yeah, true. There's, there's, um, I think the thing that's really improved in his writing is that he did, these characters are sort of much more human and you really feel like you get to know them. Um, so there's a lot more emo- emotional investment in them in, than in some of his others. His others are basically like philosophy books but done as adventure stories, which is frankly by far the best way to get your philosophy as far as I'm it, concerned. It, it really is. Yeah. I mean like mm-hmm. – if Plato had had like a, a really well written gunfight and like in between every dialogue, like a lot more people would be would be reading him today. Hey, overthinking it, podcast listeners. We do apologize for the abrupt end to this podcast for reasons that we're not entirely sure of. The software that we use to record this podcast decided to crap out about ten minutes before the end of the episode, so you got to hear almost everything that we discussed, except for the riveting conclusion. So we apologize for this. We do hope that we'll be back next week with a full, unabridged episode, and that uh, will resolve the technical issues. Thanks, and uh, have a good one. <laughs>